We are on the uh, last evening of our School of Theology together on the Trinity, and we have been looking together uh, in the course at, at introductory materials and the biblical data on the Trinity, particularly the hints of plurality in the Old Testament, general New Testament teaching. We looked at the deity of Christ and deity of the Holy Spirit, and we're looking at the historical development of the doctrine, and then finally, um, the positive presentation on the Trinity. So as we come back to this topic, let's do so with prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing tonight as we think your thoughts after you, as we think about the triune nature of the Godhead. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we might come to love you and worship and serve you all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, we talked last time about different forms of Unitarianism, that in the second century there was something called Docetism. Now, this is kind of pop quiz time. Who remembers what docetism is? Now, if you know Greek, it dokio, to see or to look, is uh, the root term behind it. Docetism is the idea, welcome, welcome. Docetism is the idea that Jesus appeared to be human, that in substance he was not really human, and uh, therefore he was just God looking like he was human, and therefore Really, why do you need the deity of Christ if there's not a real incarnation? Why do you need a second person of the Trinity if there's no real incarnation? You can just have kind of God putting on a mask, as it were. And so it's the Son of God. Yes, he's called that. But, but really, it's just God. And so there's no Trinitarian distinction, and you end up with this Unitarian idea of God. Uh, the second, uh, other second century movement, uh, Ebionism, is this idea that that uh, Jesus was a really nice, good rabbi. He was the kind of fellow that you would want to invite to your birthday party or have over to the house uh, for a meal. Nice, kind, moral, uh, a good influence, could tell you a lot about God, but he just really wasn't God. So that left with no second person of the Trinity, no need for a third person poured out by the first two Persons. Therefore, all you need really is just this one mono-unified idea of God. And then by the third century, things got a little bit more complicated. You have dynamic monarchianism and then modalistic monarchianism. Uh, and each one of those are a way of saying uh, that God is one, uh, that Trinitarian distinctions are uh, merely arbitrary rather than substantial, that... Um, uh, that God uh, speaks to us in his Son, but at the end of the day, uh, he is not truly uh, divine himself in a full-blown sense. Uh, modalistic monarchianism would particularly tell us that, that God just goes by different names. And, and you do have, down to this day, in some of the extreme Pentecostal oneness circles, the idea that the Old Testament was the the era of the Father, and, and the New Testament is the era of the Son, and today we're in the era of the Spirit. And so the names for God kind of, kind of become banner headlines for different periods of time, and it's all just the one God who's working. And then uh, the polytheistic uh, system, which is the opposite extreme. Instead of there being one God, you end up with many gods, uh, multiple gods. Um, one of those, the historic one, is Arianism, which is the idea that that Jesus is kind of a lesser God. There's God, Jehovah God, and then there's Jesus Christ, who is a God with a small g. He is someone who among the created order is at the top of the heap. 
Uh, but he is still created rather than being divine. And so they would have gone around chanting, there was a time when he was not. There was a time when Jesus, when the Son of God, when the second person of the Trinity was not. And therefore, there is no real Trinity. There's Jehovah God who's one, and Jesus who's this high creature, um, but yet he's not truly God. He's above the angels, He's the first uh, born of creation or the first order of creation, but he himself is not deity. And, and, and you can have kind of a semi-Aryan position where, well, he's, he's so much like God, but he's sort of like God. He's not absolutely just like God. He's not of the same substance, not sharing of the same nature. He's just um, an approximation, a lesser approximation of what Jehovah God is like. And that can sound very Trinitarian. You can, with great emphasis, use the names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he's put on a lesser level. And then tritheism is the idea that God is three chaps, three fellows. Uh, like you've got, uh, well, we've got, we've got three people sitting right here. And you just give the one the name Father and one the name Son and one the name Holy Spirit. And you say, well, well what, do they, what do they have that really makes them deity? Well, they all possess divinity. Well, well, what, what makes them different? Well, they're three different persons. And um, there's not the unity of being and fellowship of being that there is in Orthodox Trinitarianism. Um, sometimes Christians, even good Christians, fall into this tritheistic idea because they neglect the numerical identity of essence, that the essence of the Father and the essence of the Son and the essence of the Holy Spirit are all three the one undivided essence of the Godhead. The numerical identity of essence has always been uh, part of the basic Christian teaching and uh, implied by the doctrine of the Trinity. So that decays into polytheism just like Arianism uh, decays into a form of polytheism. In Arianism, you get the one Jehovah God and then you get this panoply potentially of kind of gods with little genes. Um, Arianism today uh, continues on its kissing cousin or or continuation is in the form of um, uh, the Jehovah's Witness movement. And tritheism, at its worst, really, is expressed in the, in the Mormon religion, where you have uh, uh, God viewed as three persons, each having not only an incorporeal nature, but also a corporal nature. And so God the Father is a separate human being who's ascended to some higher level of being uh, versus the Son versus the Holy Spirit. Um, and so polytheism and Unitarianism are two extreme opposite ends of the spectrum uh, that are not in keeping with Trinitarian doctrine. Um, we noted that Docetism uh, has Neoplatonic and Gnostic roots and that uh, there was biblical witness that pointed to, if you reject the, uh, the incarnation of the Son, as it says in Second John and verse 7 and following, that that you've rejected the gospel and you're not saved. And then the uh, adoptionistic heresy was a Jewish sect. Uh, the emphasis on Jesus as a man. Galatians counters it. And we have modern liberal heretics like Adolf von Harnack who embrace that position. Uh, with regard to Unitarianism, um, you have uh, uh, a monarchianism, uh, adoptionistic idea that Jesus was uh, a nice fellow and that God somehow filled him with his spirit and, and made him his own. And uh, so Jesus becomes the Christ rather than just being it. He's under the influence of the dynamic or the power 
uh, or the Holy Spirit in some the Spirit of God in some lesser sense. And there you oftentimes get great confusion between the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God on the one hand and the Spirit of man. And this was particularly a problem uh, in Germany uh, in the end of the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, this kind of rebirth of the idea of dynamic of adoptionism, that, that God had adopted a human man as his son. His, his person was human rather than being divine. And he was just given great power. Usually they would identify that as happening at his baptism when he was uh, brought into sonship. The Unitarian uh, idea uh, is one that's been taught down through the ages. Theodius of Byzantium, Paul of Samosata, who's Bishop of Antioch, they emphasized the humanity of Jesus and so left his divinity faded into the background. And modern Unitarian movement is very much like this. The modalistic monarchianists, uh, patropassionists, they believe that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinctions which are not foundational, and therefore you, we could just as easily say that the Father died on the cross as we could say the Son died on the cross, or the Spirit died on the cross. That, that the distinction between the three persons begins to get lost uh, in some basic sense. So, so you have deity that presents itself under different names, but in substance, or in reality, the three persons are not really three. They're all just one. Uh, and there's some other folks, uh, Noetius of Smyrna, who was opposed by Hippolytus, Praxius in the third century, who taught uh, similar things that Tertullian opposed. Um, in other words, it's not just in the recent years in the mainline churches that you've had these kinds of heresies grow up. They have grown up down through the generations. And um, uh, Sibelius and uh, some uh, uh, other uh, branches of even the Reformed faith that went astray after the Reformation. Uh, The most frequently encountered group in academic circles are process theologians who end up uh, teaching that God is evolving in his understanding and uh, he is growing in some sense, and therefore he really is less than God in himself and is on a great adventure to learn more, but he goes by different names, sometimes Father, sometimes Son, sometimes Holy Spirit. Now, uh, I'm sorry, back up if you will. Where was, where was, where was this happening? You said Egypt and... Egypt and Libya in the, in the, um, in the north, northern section of Africa, you had a very strong... Um, you had Alexandria there. You had uh, a strong um, uh, desert uh, monastic movement that was there uh, that tended to be more open to speculative and creative and imaginative interpretations of Scripture, uh, fusions of different uh, philosophies with Christian texts Christian text and theology. So uh, that led to, uh, to major difficulties uh, in that area. Uh, the Arian uh, uh, heresy was opposed by Athanasius, his great work Contra Arianus, and also in the Nicene Creed. So the church did finally come together and condemn this idea and put an emphasis on the fact that um, God, uh, the Son, shared exactly the same substance as the Father rather than sharing a similar substance to the Father. Usia or Usius describing being in Greek, and the front half, uh, either homo or homoi, just the little I, just that little extra uh, 
vowel indicated uh, not exactly like, but just kind of similar to. So is Jesus similar to the Father in his divinity, or is he exactly like the Father? Is he really divine? Is the Father as divine? Is he just like the Father in his divinity, or is he kind of somewhat like him? And you know, when you, uh, when you add the word somewhat to a sentence about identity, then that gives a lot of room. For example, you do not tell your child, I want you to somewhat clean your place or your plate. Now, in your home, if you say to your child, I want you to somewhat clean your plate, what ends up happening? <laughs> That's right. The broccoli is always the last to go. That's right. You spread things out and it doesn't look as bad as it otherwise does. And so the, the reality or substance here uh, is that there's, there's a lot less than uh, exactly what you were asking for is delivered potentially under a similarity of being rather than an identity of being. Um, that one little stroke of the pen made the difference between the deity of Christ and no deity of Christ. And then, therefore, potentially between a system that was um, on some levels Unitarian and polytheistic both at the same time versus one that was balanced and Trinitarian and had a real role and, and, and a real place for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, both the three persons on the one hand and the one divine nature on the other. Very small stroke, but, but lots of implications um, to that. And... Uh, uh, as we mentioned, the modern Jehovah's Witness movement uh, falls into this same broad category. If you ask them, if you ask them, are you an Aryan, they will not say yes. Because they, not only do they not know what Aryanism is, but they actually don't read the Bible typically so much. They read the Watchtower magazine. And uh, you can have difficulty reasoning with them from Scripture because usually it's uh, fairly canned routines that they have learned. That's an interesting question. You know, the word cult is, um, is historically a, a term that, that emphasizes the uh, hostility against the church, hostility against the Christian faith. Um, and I think in, in the 20th century particularly, it took on overtones of, of uh, uh, sneaking around and seeking to fool and capture people. Is that a decent sociological definition? Bob, I don't know if that's fair, but uh, uh, there's a, the, the, the motive and intention of the person is brought into question. It's not just they have different beliefs. They're, they can overlap, right? I mean, you could have a cult that is heretical. That's right. That's right. Um, uh, you sometimes have Christian groups that are cultish in the way they operate, isolated. They're not, uh, they're not open to the wider body of Christ. Um, there's not an understanding of orthodoxy broad enough to include anyone but themselves. Um, I can remember being at a meeting of the, um, uh, at Rutherford House of the Scottish Evangelical Society, and there was a, a conference on eschatology, and all these papers being given about the second coming of Christ, and, and the, the particular issue they were examining was the doctrine of hell. And uh, it had been a very discouraging weekend because... Um, uh, one person after another had gone up to give a paper that, in effect, said, "Let me. I got a new way to explain our way around hell that'll make us much more popular with the academic uh, circles uh, in the country." You know, you just you're sitting there going, "Oh my!" And uh, I was sitting next to a to a brother, and and he he leaned over and he said to me, "Now don't worry, Duncan." He said, uh, "Paul Helm's getting ready to get up, and he's going 
He's a, he's a strong Bible-believing man. He's going to give us a very fine and orthodox presentation. There'll be no heresy here at all. And he got up and gave a speculative paper about the possibility that maybe soul sleep is what happens in hell. And so you go to hell, but you fairly quickly fall asleep and it doesn't bother you so much. And, um, and so after it was all over, you know, they asked, are there any questions? And this brother leaned over and he said, now, Duncan, I'm beginning to have my doubts about your orthodoxy. <laughs> you know, because the, the great hope had, uh, uh, it was all speculative. I don't think he himself believed it, but it was uh, to get a discussion started. And boy, did he start one. Uh, you know, I, I built around usually one individual. Yeah, um, sometimes they take feet uh, and they, they end up with broader leadership, but oftentimes the, it's a cult of personality, you know, that kind of takes over. But um, Mormonism, for example, while it started that way, fairly quickly did broaden, you know. Why so. is Mormonism considered a cult? Whew, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it's fully As a matter of fact, one of the things I, I read every day, I try to read every day. Yeah, do you all know the, the website Real Clear Politics? Well, there's, a, there's another site that kind of, um, scrounges through all of the major articles on religion that are published every day. And they kind of have a morning edition and an afternoon edition but called um, Real Clear Religion. It's a sister site, so to speak. And, and uh, you can tell that uh, every day in every selection, there must be a Jewish selection, there must be a Roman Catholic selection, there must be a Protestant liberal selection, there must be an Protestant evangelical selection. And then you've got kind of the other category of Buddhist, Hindu, world religion thing that's thrown in. But now, always, there's one or more than one Mormon um, uh, article there. And, and it's, it's about Mormonism, but oftentimes by Mormons. I, I, um, I think it was today I read that um, a Mormon saying to other Mormons how helpful... In understanding Mormon doctrine, uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, is. Uh, because even though it wasn't, it, there was, seemed to be no historical evidence that he had read the Book of Mormon before he wrote that book. That uh, there were certain lines of theological continuity between part of what he imagined in that book and, and Mormon doctrine. And... Um, you know, you get about halfway through the article and you say, okay, now is this really written for Mormons? Are you just doing this so that the rest of us will read it and think that Mormonism and C.S. Lewis kind of line up with each other? Um, and, of course, there are always parallels that can be found. Um, somebody can be Rastafarian, and, and, you know, I can say some, some I can point out some uh, lines of continuity, you know, between a Rastafarian, theologically, somebody who believes that Haile Selassie was the reincarnation of Jesus, and or the Son of God and, and traditional Christianity. You can always find some parallel, uh, just to pick on one. Yes? And have you read, I mean, Paul, have you read the, the new um, uh, John MacArthur book, Strange Fire? You know, I'm, I'm familiar that was secondhand through, through some friends, but I have not read it myself. Today. It was hot off the presses last week. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, you need to read that and let us know what to think. Yeah, I know it created quite a little, quite a little uh, controversy. So, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, originally Mormonism was, was built around um, uh, Brigham Young, or excuse me, uh, uh, Smith, and then Brigham Young, and um, 
and they sought isolation from from uh, uh, you know in, in Utah in the desert. Um, uh, is it possible to have a cult, you know, make a transition or make a group make a transition from kind of being cult status to to mainline, you know, kind of status? I think we've had that in this country previously. What now? Well, it's you know, I think the I think the Mormon Tabernacle Choir didn't hurt, you know, because we. To me, the best way to approach them is by pointing out that they are heretics versus a cult. I mean, at least it's, it seems more scholarly, palatable, whatever you want to put on it. It's not as an offensive way to uh, rebut their, their statements. Yeah, I, I, in dealing with, with Mormon friends and co-workers and that kind of thing before, I've tried to point out that, that the fundamental difference is that they're polytheistic in their worldview, which is fundamentally different than a more integrated Trinitarian view. And is not to be confused with the kind of view that in Islam, uh, the Mohammedan view, to use the old term, of uh, you know, the one undifferentiated monad of God. That's unity in the extreme. And Mormonism is diversity in the extreme. Now, now the difficulty with both of those extreme systems is that they can head in a lot of different directions. Um, it can be developed in a number of different directions, some more objectionable than others. But... Um, Mormonism also has the added uh, protection that it is not highly theologically driven. Um, if you try to go collect a set of systematic theology texts from within Mormonism about the Mormon faith, you will be frustrated very quickly. I know because I, did, I tried doing that. And they have a handful of works out, just a few, that the church will say these are our doctrines. Uh, they're not doctrinally centered. They are um, uh, experience, continuing revelation, um, um, ideas of, of wisdom, secret insight, almost gnostic kinds of ideas, and then um, uh, moral activism in particular realms, like in the family or in the pro-life movement, or etc. They're, they're not textually bound. They're, the Mormon church has never adopted a view of plenary verbal inspiration of the te- holy texts that they follow. And so it gives them a degree of latitude, especially given continuing revelation from the head, that they can radically change their mind about what God is like and what the, what, uh, the texts mean. Um, I mean, they have gone from, by... Um, uh, their holy texts and teaching from God, condemning anyone who was not of European origin, to deciding that that wasn't any longer to be the case, and um, it's a it's a fundamental anthropological shift that was not driven by the text; it was driven by politics. Just like the other anthropological shift they're known for is on plural marriage versus monogamous marriage, and they made the shift because it was just a condition of getting in the uh, uh, statehood. They're in the process of changing their position on homosexuality. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You had a conversation with somebody recently about the Boy Scouts. You know, the Boy Scouts would have never switched in their policy if it weren't for the Mormons. Because at the end of the day, the Mormons made the Boy Scouts their major youth group outlet. They took it over to no small extent. And... Um, uh, as far as the vulnerability of their children went, you know, it just is not a problem in their circles. 
and they could make that vote and change, and we end up with a problem, but they, potentially, but they don't. Uh, that is, by we, I mean Protestant churches. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, there are publications and rumblings starting to come out now about Mormonism accommodating homosexuality. And uh, I, I, can't, I can't recall in any of my reading, you know, in 25 years before that, not a word said. Sometimes strongly against it. Yeah. yeah. That's how they were And it makes sense on this level that they are a religion that is uniquely American. America is the new Israel. And so as their twists and turns of whatever kind of mainstream American belief are in culture, they will tend to follow that theologically. Certainly they have the freedom to do that. Most people don't know the lost tribes are in Mexico. That's right. Still looking, still looking for the golden plates. Still looking. That's right. That's right. Okay. Now I don't know if that answered your question because. Someone had once told me that a cult was a group that added to the word of God, subtracted from the divinity of Christ, multiplied man's role in salvation, and divided the followers' leaders in between followers' uh, loyalties in between a leader and God. So, you know, I've kind of heard lots of different definitions of cults. I was just wondering if you had one for heresy. Yeah, with heresy, you know, you can can have someone adopt a position which is against the gospel and, and fundamentally, if the person really believes that error, fundamentally damaging to salvation. Now, um... The irony is is that oftentimes people that teach heresy don't actually take it to that extreme. They sort of teach it by mistake, um, by inference rather than directly. For example, there's one of the great early church heretics that's decried uh, in the Chalcedonian formula uh, defending the deity of Christ is Nestorius. And... um, uh, a, more care, a careful study of Nestorius' works have now led to the question being raised seriously in academic circles, was Nestorius, was Nestorius actually Nestorian? Did he actually believe the heresy that ended up having his name? And some, a surprising number of scholars say no, uh, whereas traditionally the view was yes, that there was just an assumption that there was an identity between the two. Um, and Nestorian Christianity made it all the way to Japan, to China and to Japan. Before the missionaries, you know, our, before our missionaries arrived from the what Pacific side. Um, it's the idea that Jesus is not one person in two natures, but that he's two persons in two natures. So they take the two natures and pull them apart so far that the person, in effect, splits into two parts. Um, I one time... In a, the, in, a, in a seminary class, uh, referred to it as theological schizophrenia. And then somebody who had uh, schizophrenia in their family was quite upset w- with me for insulting uh, uh, that medical condition. So I'm not trying to insult the medical condition, but it's, it's, um, it's a divided personhood. And so when, when they read the Bible, they read it this way. What, they, they read a text out of the Gospels. Jesus walked on the water, and so they ask the question, was this something that the human Jesus did, or is this something the divine Jesus did? As if the two are two different individuals. So what's the answer to that? 
When Jesus walked on the water, was it the human Jesus doing that or the divine Jesus doing that? All right. Okay, so, so the one person used his human nature in walking on the water to do what? What did the human nature of Jesus do as he walked on the water? He walked. It may have been moonwalking. It may have been skipping. We, just, you know, we, we know that he walked. Okay. What else was the human nature of Jesus being used by the divine person, the second person in the Trinity to do? Was it just... An aspect of the body walking? Was there anything soulish going on? Any incorporeal thing going on? He's walking toward the boat. That the <laughs> <laughs> All right. He was showing his, his, his deity. Well, that must have been exciting, you know. Yeah. It's a, it's a great moment. The waves may be washing up against his legs. It may be a little chilly, you know. There's a lot of stimulation going on in that sense. So there's, he's, he's, um, well, it's which restaurant is it? They ask you if you want this fully engaged or not, or is that uh, is that Emerald Firehouse Subs? Yes, they say. Now, do you want this fully engaged? And that means they got all these little goodies they can put on the sandwich. Uh, in the same way, uh, the the full humanity of Jesus is fully engaged in everything he does, walking on the water, uh, the corporal and incorporal. His mind is involved. Human mind is involved. His human emotions are involved. And uh, he's speaking, he's walking, etc. Now, um, how is his divinity involved in walking on the water? <laughs> oh, the not sinking part. Yes, yes. And it's a, and it's you know, and, and you end up with a very interesting theological argument. Okay, now hold on. What holds him up from sinking in the water? Is it the activity? Of the divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity himself? Or is it the work of the Holy Spirit? And it's a great miracle. What about the Father? Couldn't he be doing it too? Well, probably well, well and not only probably, because at the end of the day, every work of the Trinity externally, every um, opus ad extra, we say in Latin, or in the, the, the external work that you do, uh, that God does, involves all three persons. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working and cooperating in that activity. Because the essence of the deity is one. Yes, because they have a basic unity in the, in the divine nature. They all share that one numerical identity of essence. Yeah. Very good. Okay. You may indeed, brother. When it comes to a heresy, to be a heresy, it has to start from true faith, right? So you can't have like a, a Hindu heresy, or if you do, it separates from Hinduism. So right. to be a, a, a heresy, it must have started within Christianity. Not all cults do. And then grows off in a, in a bizarre direction. Yeah. Yeah, David Koresh, I don't think, was a great Methodist before he became. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Could I ask for a little clarity on one? Yes. If, if you have. So I don't know the exact word you, you use, but um, basically if there's a heresy and you really believe it, your your salvation is jeopardized. You didn't use jeopardized. You diminished or impacted. Yeah. Sorry, damaged. I think you said damaged. Damaged. Damage. So, so could you clarify what damaging means? Yeah, yeah. Let me. How it doesn't become works-based. 
if I have to get everything right in order to have salvation? Right. I mean, at the end of the day, there are, there are things that are essential to the Christian faith, and there are things that are not essential. Like, for example, whether human nature is made up of two parts or three parts, um, that can be a, a profoundly important theological dispute. Um, uh, somebody can adopt one position or the other, and there'll be lots of implications throughout the rest of their thinking. But at the end of the day, the Bible is not so repeatedly clear on that issue that it's ever been identified as foundational to Christianity. The same thing would not be true of the deity of Christ. Um, it, is, it has been understood in the life of the church experientially, but also in theological reflection, that if you don't believe in the deity of Christ, then you don't have an atonement that is uh, uh, full and sufficient for anyone, and you, and you would therefore be left lost in your sin and your misery. So denying the deity of Christ... Um, would strike at your salvation. That is, it's not that you were saved and then you gave it up and therefore you're not saved. It's that somebody who's teaching against the deity of Christ and denying that and urging others to, um, if their listeners believe what they say, they would not be leading them to salvation. They'd be leading them away from it. Okay. Now, what this means is we need to be very careful to draw the circle of Christian doctrine with its proper diameter. You know, and I, I know folks who they draw, they draw their Christianity just about that big. It's, it's so small that they disagree with, them, with themselves today versus yesterday. I remember, I remember one uh, uh, dear old ruling elder in the midst of great frustration uh, years and years ago. He said, well, if the church just won't be right on this, don't you worry, Duncan. We'll just nail a few clapboards together in the back of my yard, and we'll just start worshiping there. And I thought to myself, wow, and it'll be like three weeks before I'm kicked out. <laughs> you know, his, his circle was not, it was so small, it was just him. I'm not even sure his wife, you know, fit into the picture. And then you've got other people who draw it so large, they really are, are fundamentally out of accord with any historic understanding of Christianity. And now if we go to the Bible and use it to judge how big to draw the circle, we see people who in uh, ethics in their life, but also in their understanding of God, have more or less uh, degree of an understanding that's proper. And there's a, um, uh, there's a, there's a, a point at which uh, an idea is so false that it will lead somebody away from Christ and away from the gospel rather than to it. Um, now, that means that somewhere between these two is a line. And uh, when it comes to the salvation of some particular individual, you're asking and you're probing a question about their relationship with Christ, their union and communion with him, etc. And that's not always so easy to judge because I can't do it based upon uh, denominational affiliation. Um, I, I do know some folks that are so narrow that uh, they get angry, and somebody who's an Arminian, they immediately call them a Pelagianist, and then they immediately call them a heretic, and they're non-Christian. And I, well, is that a heresy? Um, it's it, it's a serious error. Um, if you take it and and consistently extrapolate it to the most extreme position, then then yes, it would lead someone astray. But I give thanks to God that that's not done. 
that we end up with evangelical Arminian positions that um, mediate between those two extremes. And so I can say to my brother, Matt Friedman, I love you. I appreciate your commitment to the Bible. I love it when you preach on the cross. I just wish you understood the Holy Spirit's application of the cross a little bit more carefully in biblical terms. Um, but that doesn't strike at the vitals of religion. But Pelagius is a heretic because at the end of the day, he believes that salvation is grounded and centered in man rather than in Christ. And that man's problem is, is that he's just not um, expending enough moral energy in order to be good and earn place with God. So, yes, you know, the, the um, um, people who view the cross as impinging on man rather than on God, you know, we... The cross is a place that we look to and it motivates us to make better choices. Boy, that's a problem. Uh, but, but if we have like an Armenian brother who views the cross as a place that impacts upon God, but their understanding of the extent of that is different than, than subtle Bible teaching, then, then that would not be a matter striking at the vitals of religion. Now, is it possible to extrapolate consistently from any error and create something that is a heresy. I believe, systematically, I believe that to be the case. That any one error that we make, if we then begin realigning everything in our life in light of that, we can create such fundamental dislocations that at some point, whether it be in eschatology or in the doctrine of God or in in um, pneumatology or in soteriology, it ends up doing fundamental damage. They say that if, if you minimize some aspect of the scripture, your children will be heretics and your grandchildren will be unbelievers. Well, not, I mean, intellectually, not, not necessarily your literal descendants. Yeah, I, I think that's a way of, of, of generationally talking about this, this uh, working out with consistency, some error. For example, um, when it comes to our covenant, when it comes to children of believers, you know, one of the great um, encouragements and hopes that we have given to us by Scripture is not that we're so wonderful and persuasive that uh, our kids are all going to turn out right. It's the, active, the, the dogged activity of the Holy Spirit. As God works along the lines of his promises, his covenantal promises to us, uh, to our children and to our grandchildren, to a thousand generations. And um, in other words, uh, Reed and Arthur and Susan have uh, their Christian their Christian faith and their love of the Lord, and etc. It's not actually due to anthropology, due to dad. It's due to the dogged work in pursuit of the Holy Spirit in their life. Now, yes? The thief on the cross, Christ, he didn't have a great deal of theology when he accepted Christ and went to heaven. He, you know, the, the, the text doesn't give us a great deal of information about him. He does seem to have some understanding of the, if we call it broadly, the Judeo-Christian tradition. Yeah, I mean, some, something of the Jewish, Jewish religious understanding. He had some concept of God. Um, he seemed to recognize in Christ, look to him as one who uh, was not a sinner like they were. So I think there's implied there in the text a certain degree of knowledge. It's it's not it's not like this, but it's also not that he knew nothing. Um, yes, and 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 there are other interesting questions that we would have to ask, like, wow, where do people get held before their crucifixion? 
I mean, did these guys all three end up on Calvary and they didn't know anything about each other, never seen each other, or were they held in the same facility? Hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of unanswered questions there. Uh, a lot of room for historical possibilities of interaction, you know, before. But uh, good question. Good question. All right, we need to take a break, and then we'll come back. Thank you all for your patience. Okay, shall we get started again? We are very near the end of McLeod's book, The Shared Life. Uh, we're going to spend tonight talking about the last two chapters, which, uh, which really, if you've read these chapters, I think you understand uh, very clearly where he's headed with this. He's looking at sort of um, traditions that attack or resist the notion of the Trinity. And he starts us, I think, in a, in a reasonable place, uh, in a sense, when it comes to sort of resistance to the Trinity, he starts with what I might call the beginning, and that is he starts with Judaism. You know, in a sense, in a certain sense, you might say in a, in a worldly sense, Christianity arises out of there, right? So, you know, there's a, a, a way in which we can describe Jesus himself. He was at one point a Jew, right? And he came out of Judaism. And so McLeod walks us through uh, sort of the... The resistance, the complaints, if you will, uh, that, that uh, the Jewish tradition has against particularly the notion of the Trinity. He's not trying, it's not a systematic approach to everything that Judaism thinks is wrong with Christianity. He's specifically looking at why the Trinity, because by the way, it turns out this is a big, big part, maybe the most important part of why Jews reject Christianity, and it's the, it's the nation of the Trinity. He uses the word uh, on page 99, he says that they find the notion of the tr Trinity, a triune God, abhorrent. Like, it is really, really bad uh, from a Jewish perspective. And he breaks this down into uh, several sort of categories here. And maybe we'll just walk through these together for, uh, for a few minutes here, if you don't mind. He breaks this down, first of all, he says they, they're deeply concerned about what they call Jesus' Messiahship. So they're looking at the, at the second person of the Trinity. And what about his messiahship is problematic? Now, you understand that the Jews expect a messiah, right? Am I, I mean, this is not news, right? They definitely expect a messiah. But they say, this guy isn't it. Now, by the way, I take that for granted. McLeod does sort of drop something here, which is maybe, I, I, I'd like him to write more about this one day. This is obviously not the place for it. But he does point out, he says, you know, a lot of modern Jews don't really even seem to expect a messiah anymore. It really seems that there's a certain element of truth in what he says. He just says that as an observation, and he moves on. Um, but that is probably worth exploring, but not us and not him in this book. But, but there is some truth in that. And so if that's the case, then, well, gee, what do you, how do you present Jesus then? Look, he fulfills the prophecy, and we gave up on that. So that is problematic. But he points to a couple of things related to this claim that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, well, the mode of his death. He says Jews complain about that as... That's a problem. What would be so bad about the manner of Jesus' death? Why would that be a problem for a Jew? Everyone who's hanged on the tree is cursed. Yeah, they, 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 they hone in on that point. He's cursed. Particularly, the scriptures say, uh, it says in, it's in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 21, he is cursed by God. So, from their point of view, if, if you're hung on a tree, if you're crucified, if you hang on that cross, you are cursed by God. You couldn't then be God's Messiah. You're cursed by God. 
I think all of us here, I don't need to explain it to you, right? Most of you probably accept the divinity of Jesus Christ, I, I'm imagining. Um, and you probably think he's the Messiah. So I probably don't have to explain it to you, but to, to a Jew, they don't see this as, they don't, they don't see the possibility. In fact, I'll go further. They don't see the necessity. He had to be cursed in order to deliver us from our sins, right? He had to take that on. If he didn't, then he is no Messiah. But that's not how they see a Messiah. Messiah is not somebody who's going to necessarily deliver us from sin. He's going to deliver us from worldly servitude, from you know, all sorts of maybe political problems. He, he, he'll have a ministry, but it's not the huge, divine, the earth-changing ministry that we associate with Jesus Christ. So they point to the manner of his death as sort of proof that he can't be the Messiah. Again, it's very sad because it, it misses the point of what the Messiah is. Um, on page 101, if you want to playing along at home, the very last paragraph, he says, uh, in effect, he says, the early Christians, uh, even Christians ever since, uh, were boasting about what, according to the Jews, they ought to be ashamed of. So you think about just how does, how does for example, how does Paul present Jesus Christ? How does Peter present Christ at the, at the, at the Sermon of Pentecost, right? This Jesus that you crucified, I mean, he, he leads with that. He was put on that cross. Paul does the same thing. We do the same thing. I wonder if that's why I think Paul says so emphatically, I came preaching Christ and him crucified. And him crucified, right. It's, it's, what, what the Jew sees as the problem is actually the core of salvation, right? He had to be crucified, but the Jew doesn't see it that way. Um, that's right. Exactly. No, exactly. That implies that there were those who thought maybe it was shameful, right? And that would be, it would, for the most part, it was the Jews around him who see that as this is shame, Paul says, no, there's nothing to be ashamed of. This is our deliverance. I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this. Um, I'll bet, I'm not going to ask for a, a demonstration, but I'll bet at least a few of you maybe even wear sometimes a cross, maybe around your neck, maybe as a, an adornment. But if you ever think about the implications of that, the cross is a, it's an implement of execution, right? It, it would not be too different from us wearing like a little miniature electric chair around our necks in our culture, right? So, but... It, but that is the point. I mean, that's exactly McLeod's point. We almost have to embrace that as Christians. It is that execution. It is that death. It is that shameful death, as it were, that is necessary for our salvation. Anything less, and he's really not the Messiah at all. But according to McLeod, he's right. that The, the Jew does not see it that way. And this is that um, substantially. He says there's another issue that Jews have when they come to Jesus, and that has to do with, he says, they, they, they balk at him being the world's Messiah. And this actually is actually, it's pretty simple, but it's also just tragic. Uh, they see the Messiah as delivering them. Like, he's, he will come and deliver the Jews. He's not going to deliver the world. Now, I think, again, all of us probably understand, that is really a misunderstanding of Scripture. Even the Old Testament, forget the New Testament, not that you should, uh, but even if you just look at the Old Testament, I think we can read that now, especially knowing who Jesus is, we can read that pretty clearly to point to a Messiah, a, a deliverer for all tribes, all peoples, right? But that's not, again, that's not how the Jews of Jesus' day, or even many contemporary Jews see it. They see it as he is our Messiah. So this claim that he's going to deliver, he's going to make disciples of all the nations, that's, that's not our Messiah. That's not, not the one we're talking about. So that's proof that he's not the Messiah that we're expecting. And so we deny, again, the Jews say, we deny that he is, in fact, some divine entity, part of the Godhead. 
he couldn't be he couldn't be the second person of the Trinity if this were the case. Uh, and related to this, McLeod says they looked for a political restoration. What does he mean by that? They expected that there's the Jews expected somebody from the line of King David to come and restore the Davidic throne. Very literally. Like there should be a castle with a throne in it and a guy sitting on it who comes from the line of David and now he'll have a scepter and he's going to point at people and his will will be done and, and he will be better than the Romans were at it. And that's literally what they were expecting. They wanted somebody who would drive the Romans out and just like another Solomon just get up there and, and rule for us. That's a Messiah. Now, when you, when you compare that to what we get out of our actual Messiah, that's, that's paltry. That's, that's it. That's all you want? Throw in the health care plan, too, and you're done, right? You're almost finished. I, that was fortuitous. I apologize. Not necessary. Couldn't help myself. Remember what Jesus himself even says, my kingdom is not of this world. He anticipates. He anticipates that objection. What you're thinking of of, as kingdom, very narrow. I'm the king of the whole thing. I am the king of kings in a sense, right? Uh, But that's not, again, that's not how the Jews see it. And so they use that as a, to them that means he's not divine. He couldn't be of God. He can't be the Messiah. And then finally, um, at least according to McLeod, he says that the the Jews accuse um, Jesus of, of disrespecting tradition. It's an abbreviation for, well, for nothing. They see him as, again, kind of just blitzing right over top of these important Jewish traditions. Uh, Some of them, Paul encounters, right, like, you know, hey, if you're not uh, if you're not circumcised, and you can't be one of us. And you know, they they sort of see not just Jesus' disciples, but Jesus himself as kind of just ignoring these fundamental parts of of Judaism and and not taking advantage of them. But remember, even again, what does Jesus himself say when confronted on a point very much like this? Does he, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I've come to fulfill the law. Right? So this is the tradition brought to completion, brought to fruition. There's nothing to, nothing to be ashamed of here. This, Jesus is not against Jewish tradition. He is improving. He is finalizing. He's completing Jewish tradition. But again, that's just not how the Jews see it. And, uh, it gets maybe fuzzy for us, but uh, maybe I should probably make this clear. McLeod is saying that it, that's not just, a, not just an ancient thing. This is not just the Jews of Jesus' day. This is an ongoing sort of dispute. This is, this is the Jews denying the Trinity even now and pointing to this Jesus of ours as, um, as the problem. So, in this, um, this chapter, the, it's a chapter entitled Judaism and Islam. He devotes like 20 pages to Judaism and about three pages to Islam. So, we'll get to some Islam later, but in the meantime, uh, he, we've got more to say about Judaism. Uh, because the one big category of sort of, uh, of, of, of argumentation, he says, is this notion of messiahship. He doesn't meet their definition of messiah, as we've seen. Uh, he goes on to say that they also deny this notion of a son of God, period. Actually, if you turn over with me, it starts on page 111. He says, uh, Jews also reject the idea that Jesus is in some unique and special sense the son of God and therefore divine. Uh, 
Uh, this rejection, too, he says, comes with specific arguments. And these arguments are interesting. So, again, they're, they're denying, you understand, from their point of view, the Messiah is not the Son of God. He just isn't. That's how they understand their own prophecies. He's not the Son of God. He's just this guy who delivers. They take that Messiah very literally. He's just a deliverer. So in that sense, you know, Moses was also a kind of deliverer. And so was maybe Joseph. And we could put some other people who were also sort of little messiahs along the way. This is just going to be the one who really, really delivers. But he's not divine. He is not the son of God in some literal, real, you know, eternal sense. He's just very, very helpful. He's just a messiah. He points to some interesting claims. And the first one is, this kind of blew me away when I was looking at this. He says, um, and he, he cites, this is the one where he actually cites a couple of examples of, of rabbis who argue in this line. He says that uh, this is, you get a lot of argument out of Judaism that says this whole son of God thing is a late addition to Christian theology. Like, it comes well later, you know, well after Christ is gone. That's just bizarre. First of all, Christ himself made this claim over and over again. So that doesn't sound like a late addition. That sounds like a contemporary addition. And think about this. Um, they even go so far, according to McLeod, I think he's right. he, he quotes some sources. He says, what are the, how do the Jews even describe this? This is a late addition, and it came when relationships between Jews and Christians broke down. It was a reaction to a later... Now, they say, later the relationship broke down. And McLeod points out, hmm, let's see. Why was Jesus crucified in the first place? <laughs> it sounds like there were some tensions between Jews and Christ in the first place. It doesn't seem like a late addition. That's, in fact, why, why, I mean, to the point, when he, exactly why did they want him up on that cross? It's because of who he claimed to be. Remember the episode with the, with the Pharisees? Before Abraham was, I am, he said. And how did the Pharisees react? They accused him of blasphemy. Because they knew exactly what he meant. My fear is many contemporary readers don't know what he meant. But the Pharisees knew what he meant. He was claiming, not later, at the moment, he was claiming to be God. So to say that this is some, like, after-the-fact kind of asterisk that, you know, Paul's disciples added to the argument is really nonsensical. It's common throughout the New Testament, and it's, it's, just, it's common in Jesus' own ministry. Turn with me if you would. If you have the book, if you don't have it, um, you can, I guess, sit quietly. Um, over on page 114, he makes uh, another interesting argument here. At least, again, he's speaking in the voice of, of, of Judaism and their, their sort of resistance to this idea of, of Jesus being the Son of God. They say, this is interesting, think about all we've said in terms of the Trinity over the last few weeks, right? They say that having two persons undermines the unity of God, which they see as sort of the main lesson of the Old Testament. The Lord your God is one. But that's undermined if there's more than one person, right? And that's, I, I'm not unsympathetic. I, I, I'm not saying that they're right. I'm just saying that it is hard to understand. I mean, this, isn't that the point? What is mysterious about the Trinity? How can there be three persons in one essence? Their answer to that is, well, there aren't three persons, and there's only one essence. Ha <laughs> ha, see, they fixed the problem. 
Look at what, um, what McLeod says here. He says, surely, I'm looking at the second paragraph from the top of the page. Surely the answer to this is that we must take our idea of the unity of God from his word, not from our own a priori notions. A priori sort of means before the fact, like the assumptions we bring to the argument. He's essentially saying, McLeod, is that we need to be careful not to think of unity the way we think of unity. We should look at what does God mean by unity. So first of all, let's not bring our own personal assumptions into it. And then he goes on. More fundamentally, he says, there are very great difficulties in the idea of God existing for countless ages as a solitary being. Could such a being be self-conscious? Could he be a person when he had nothing to relate to? Could he be blessed, that is, happy? Could he love when he had nothing to love? Why, why, when he came to make man in his image, did he make him for fellowship if he himself knew no fellowship? You see what McLeod is saying there, and I wish, again, it's a short book. This is worth developing further. I'd love to see him do it. He's saying that God has to have a triune nature. Like, he can't be God without it. That would... That wouldn't just shock our Jewish friends. That would shock every monotheistic believer that ever was, who wasn't a Christian at least. That God must have a triune nature. That he couldn't be simply a monadic God. That is a God of just one person and just one essence because he would be, in a sense, limited. And then if he's limited, he's really not a God. Not a God in the sense that we mean that. Like I said, I wish you could develop that like I said, it's a short book. That's not his job here. But uh, that's, that's an interesting argument worth uh, pursuing further. And finally, I think I've mentioned this already. He, to round out his argument, uh, sort of as presented by, the, uh, by Jewish resistance, he says, um, they see the Messiah as simply, he's just not divine. They don't read that out of the Old Testament. They don't get from the Old Testament that the Messiah would have any kind of divine nature. So even if we forget everything we said, throw all that out the window, they would simply say, what if Jesus is the Messiah? That still doesn't make him the Son of God. That still doesn't make him the second person of the Trinity. You still have a, 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 a unity of, of the Godhead, just one God. That's all that's possible. It's plural, right? I mean, that's, they have no explanation for that. I, mean, I think McLeod even points to that. They offer nothing. They just sort of scratch their heads. Wow, yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. Messiahship, the Well, that's that's a little bit of an open-ended question. I think some would have thought of a, they were expecting a permanent restoration, and maybe that goes on forever and ever and ever. Um, or maybe it's sort of somebody who comes in and sort of fixes things up, and maybe then he's not there after that, but he's fixed things up, right? I think there are both elements of that in the Jewish tradition. But the point is, I think, at least for, for most Jews, what they did not expect was sort of any kind of a divine restoration. It was a very earthly one. Were you going to say something? So your earlier example, Moses. Yeah. I've spoken with Jews in Israel that are kind of like, you know, priests or Christians that are Easter, Christmas only. Yeah. Jews that are that way. Is yeah, yeah. And Passover Jews or whatever. Because yeah. the they were interested in, in my beliefs. Yeah. I said, well, how do you view the Messiah? And they said it's like Moses was the Messiah. Yeah. And there could be another one. There could be another Moses. Right. Generation, yeah. If needed. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, again, I find that kind of sad. 
uh, only in the sense that that is so much less even than old-style Judaism was, right? But that's, I don't know, like if I guess if I had the experience of the Jews over the last thousand years, maybe I would lose faith also. But what, what alternative did they have? Their Messiah has come and you missed it. Uh, it's hard to keep <laughs> hoping after that. In Israel today, of a guy who is the Messiah that died like maybe 15 years, 20 years ago now, and and they say and, like, yeah, he's he it. in New York or somewhere. Oh wow! So How disappointing! Like in, on billboards and stuff, and I asked who's that, and I said, oh, that's so and so rabbi. He was the Messiah for this particular set. Wow! And he lived in New York. <laughs> Yes. Well, yeah, we've got to, got to bury your Messiah properly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's after you stop laughing, then you have to go back and get into the details, and who knows, right? Yes? What do they do with the Holy Spirit? I don't think that's the kind of hard to see in the Old Testament unless you're um, so do they consider the Holy Spirit non-existent? Yeah, I, I don't think that... Um, it's hard to... I should be careful how I say this. It's hard to speak of Judaism as one thing. It's many things. It has many sort of branches and, and divisions and sects and so forth. But um, I, I think almost universally, nearly across the board, they just they don't think of the... The Holy Spirit is not a thing. They just reject that out of hand. It's, you can't say that about Jesus. Jesus existed, so you've got to deal with him, right? Like... There's, there's evidence he was here. So, But what, what did he do and who was he? So we have that argument, right? The Holy Spirit, they can just, yeah, I've, I've never seen one of those. Well, throughout the history of the Old Testament, God is, is periodically filling certain individuals with the Holy Spirit. With some kind of, yeah. 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 Now, that, that's true, yeah. Now, whether, what they don't interpret that as the third person of the Trinity. Yeah. It is God, the Holy Spirit, like the cloud or the right. flame. Or it's, the, it's, it's no different than it's, any other manifestation of right. God. It's not a separate thing. Exactly. It's just, this is God doing his thing here in this time. Instead of yeah. not a burning bush, he's yeah. the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. But so they don't, you understand, that's, there's no hint of a trinity or, what would, if there's only two of them, what would that be? Oh, that was another word for that, but sure. <laughs> um. I'd like to tell you, um, not long ago, about a month ago, I just finished reading once again A Tale of Two Cities. And I keep thinking of Madame Defarge as she's... Mm-hmm. I hope you're not, like, recording all the heretical things I'm saying so when the revolution comes, I get beheaded later. You should have seen us when we did A Tale of Two Cities in the club and almost everybody was playing their first <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's right. That's, 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 I don't want to see her there. That's, that's not good. <laughs> Which one of you is the vengeance? <laughs> well, you've already figured it out. That's good in a bad way. Uh, let me just quickly run through three others. He talks about Islam, Mormonism, and, and Jehovah's Witnesses. These, by the way, are not the only cults that are out there, right? Uh, these are ones that he picks because they have a direct attack on the Trinity itself. So there's po- lots of other errors you can, you can look at, but these ones he looks at in particular. He points out, first of all, about Islam. He says, you know, Islam actually has a fairly high view of Jesus. He's actually a very important prophet in the Islamic tradition. He's not Muhammad, but he's not far behind him. He ranks pretty high in their sort of pantheon of prophets. Uh, but obviously, to them, he is not... 
first of all, they don't see a, a triune God at all. Allah, which as you know, is just the Arabic word for God, so don't be confused. Allah, is, he doesn't have three persons. He doesn't have one essence. It's just Allah. It's just, he just is. He's just one thing. No, it's singular. Yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. There probably is a plural word. I don't know what it is. Probably derivation of Allah. He points out, though, he's absolutely right. You know, even a little bit about Islam. You've probably encountered this before. They see kind of a progressive revelation. So they look at the Bible as the inspired word of God, but it's not without error, and it's not complete. So there had to be more revelation beyond it. So the Old Testament revealed some sort of darkly, not, maybe not quite right in all of its points. But then came the New Testament that, that revealed a little bit more and gets a little clearer. Ah, but then comes the Koran, and now it's really clear. And so unlike for us, we, see, we don't say that about – now, actually, there are some, I think, denominations that do run the risk of saying what I'm about to say we don't say. Uh, we don't say the New Testament sort of cancels the Old Testament, right? I just said it a little while ago. What did Jesus say? I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill the law. The, the Old Testament, still, that's, that's God's law. Yes, that is, that is all true. It doesn't become untrue because the New Testament was written. But they, Islam is, uh, the Islamic religion does see future uh, subsequent revelation canceling out previous revelation. So the New Testament does kind of cancel the old, and the Quran cancels everything. And so anything that you see about, for example, because uh, they have to deal with it, right? There are plenty of examples of the Trinity, as we've seen, in the New Testament. Well, how do they get around that? Because the Quran trumps it, right? So there was a time when the best thing going was the New Testament. That's the most accurate thing, but that time is over. We have a new, more accurate thing. So whatever you think you know about the Trinity, forget it. Read the Quran, and you'll see that there's just one God, and there's no Trinity, and Jesus is not his son, just a handy prophet to have around. So then they must not believe that the Bible was written by a divine God that can't make mistakes. I'm not saying it's consistent. <laughs> but yes, and, and why would we then think that, you know, the Koran really is, will there be some future thing that cancels even the Koran maybe, right? I mean, there's no answer for this. Except that, you know, if you're going to have, if you're going to have a, a, a false religion, you've got to deal with what came before it, right? So that's how they handled it. Yeah, the Quran is written specifically as the the word of God by God's hand, written in Arabic, the only true language in the world. Yeah, exactly. They 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 prefer not to translate the Quran. They prefer you learn Arabic. That's exactly right. They yeah, it's never be it's never translated. It's a, you're right, it's a fairly recent thing. And, and even now, except some, among some of the more liberal sects of Islam, it's still considered sort of secondary. If you're reading a translation, you're like, that's filtered. You don't have it right. You, you really need to learn Arabic. And, and Christianity came, was there where the, the, the Jews were disobedient to God. Christianity tried to correct everything, but it's too soft. So Muhammad had to bring this new thing to the world yeah. to deal with the sin, sin of the world because that's where the harshness of, of uh, the Muslims are, because Islam and Muslim was born out of violence. Absolutely. That's, yeah. Now, some will deny that, but e not even all Muslims will deny that. It's historical. It's just fact, right. It just is, yeah. I've lived with these people for years. <laughs> it is a very strange thing. It really is. Well, you know, it is... 
at the end of the day, it is a false religion, so we should not expect it to be without contradiction. It has contradictions, or it would be the true religion. And they create ones of their own to kind of dispel Yeah, yeah. So this, I mean, it's the nature of any of these. They have to kind of backfill and sort of, you know, recreate the story, which... Um, just if you ever talk to a Muslim, even for a little bit, uh, it doesn't take long for them to get to the argument where they accuse us of being polytheists. And actually, I, I, I love this. If you get a chance, if you haven't read, read it, go back and read the last like two or three pages of this, of this chapter seven. Uh, he deals with this question: How is it that it became a universal assumption among Muslims that Christians are polytheists? He makes it very clear because because Muhammad had a very wrong understanding of what Christianity was. Like, he, he knew some Christians, but they were kind of, they were on the heretical end of Christianity. And so what he thought, it's a complete straw man argument. He, he attacks, not attacks in a sense, but the Quran is, is very harsh against this notion of, of polytheism with an eye towards Christians. Uh, but it was just wrong. It's not what Christians thought. It's not what we think now. It's not what they thought then. It's clear he had a very sort of jaded, sort of tainted idea of what Christianity was. So this, this, this attack on Christianity as a polytheistic religion is just is completely misguided. Uh, in fact, there's a, and he quotes it in here, one of the surahs of the Quran refers to the sort of the false notion of the Trinity. Uh, the God the Father, Mary, and their son. Like, like that's the Trinity. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not familiar with this Trinity, in fact. So the point simply being that, I mean, it is, <laughs> how did Mary get in there? I mean, what, she was, exactly, uh, there's a lot of space in between, right? Yeah, that's right. Work that all out later. We, uh, we need to go here, but let me just say a couple of quick things about the final chapter on both Mormonism and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, he points out, and we talked about this, Dr. Rankin referred to it earlier, he does point out that in a sense, I mean, you could, you, could look at, you could look at Mormonism as a, a heresy that develops out of Christianity. I mean, most Mormons, again, you talk to them for ten minutes, you get this, becomes, it becomes pretty clear. They think of themselves as Christians. My, my wife was um, not here in this town, in another town. She was in a, a, a homeschooling co-op, and there was a Mormon family that joined this co-op. And they were having a discussion in, in, a, in a group, and, and you know, some people made some, you know, I, I don't know how it all went down, but this woman came to my wife later, and she said, you know, sometimes you know, when I'm here, I just, these people make me feel like I'm not a Christian. Right, exactly, you're not, but that's not how they see themselves. They, they really do in a certain sense. If by Christian you mean sort of, I think Jesus is a great guy and has some interesting things to say, well, I guess then they're Christians, but, but if you mean by Christian, you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and died for our sins, and was resurrected, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and is the second person of the Trinity, well, they don't believe that at all. So there, is, there's, there are aspects of Christianity that are the foundation of Mormonism, but they add so much more to it, and they deny important things. So it really does sort of have a heretical origin, but has branched so far away from that, that um, despite the fact that Mormons often refer to themselves as Christians, it doesn't make it so at all, or even close. I forget who it was who asked the question. Um, is there some kind of line that divides sort of heresy and we break faith and those people are not Christians and just sort of error? You know, and, and Dr. Rankin's response was a great one. The Arminian is a brother who's just wrong about something. Uh, 
The Pelagian, the heretic, is a person who is going to hell, and there's a big difference between those two things. Mormon, way on the other side, right? They are, they reject Jesus' divinity in, in the sense that we mean that in the, in the New Testament. So they, they are sort of, um, they are way off base. There's a great line or two in here, which I'll, just, I'll read just one little quick passage here and then move on. Um, on page 125, he says, uh, Brigham Young once declared that the body of Christ was begotten of the Virgin by Adam after the same manner as the tabernacles, that is the word that's sort of like bodies, of Cain, Abel, and the rest of the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Uh, Joseph Smith and James Talmadge attempted to deliver Mormonism from this embarrassment. Didn't come from, uh, Christ was not begotten of (laughs) the Virgin by Adam. I don't know if that was unclear, but let me make that point clear. So he's saying that Joseph Smith and others tried to deliver Mormonism from this embarrassment, but succeeded only in making matters worse. According to the former, this is a quote from Smith, Our Father in heaven is the Father of Jesus Christ, both in spirit and in flesh. And according to the latter Talmadge, Christ is, quote, the offspring of a mortal mother and of an immortal or resurrected and glorified father. Do you see how muddled that is? That doesn't even make sense. And that's them trying to fix the problem. This is... This is all. No, they were contemporaries. They were alive at the same time. Yeah. 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 Joseph Smith like the guy who wrote it first? Yeah. He died on the way after Yeah. And they had a big Yeah. 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 Of course, yeah. Adam was the father. Wouldn't it have been Joseph? I mean, assuming he wrote the Golden Tablet or read the Golden Tablet. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then he changed his mind. Yeah. Correcting his own theology. Yeah. There was there were a series of Joseph Smiths. Yeah. 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 But you see what a big, giant problem that becomes as, as sort of, when you start your cult, keep this in mind, uh, when you make your errors, then when we fix the errors, I mean, how do you begin to, unless you come back to the true faith, you just end up making the matters worse and more complicated and more, it, it, it just, I love that passage because it just shows how just muddy and ridiculous all that becomes. Did you want to add something? I was just going to is it the same as, so the, the prophet... Or, or don't, don't they have prophets that can do new revelations? Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. Whatever was before. That's right, yeah. It's the same, in a sense, it's not unlike Islam in that sense. It, it keeps unfolding all the time. If, if, if God still has a body of flesh and bones, mm-hmm. where is he? I mean, <laughs> is he floating in space? Or? Well, they got some scheme of planets. Yeah, yeah no, that's, you're exactly right. They, they get around this by. They don't see, like, we see the division of sort of the heavens and the earth, right? One's spiritual, the other's, um, you know, is material. Uh, I think they, it's hard to get, sort of get this straight from a Mormon because they don't like to talk about it. But I think they do see a universe of actual planets. And so you could be a god elsewhere on another planet that is a material. So you wouldn't have flesh and bone then. Exactly. Yeah. You've got to populate your planet. But how do they <laughs> You're asking questions which I don't think Joseph Smith addressed. <laughs> here's a little um, here's a little secret for you. you can share with your Mormon friends from the from the very beginning. Ever since Utah was a state, so from its inception, it has always had and to this day still has a divorce rate 
that is well above the national average. We don't usually associate divorce with Mormonism. It's kind of a well-kept secret, though. Divorce rates are very high among Mormons because, for the reasons you were just suggesting, when, when a couple is married, when, when they, they have a very sort of patriarchal view, when they die, and if they've been faithful Mormons, that husband, is, he comes back to life. He's resurrected first. And at their wedding ceremony, they get a secret name. He goes and calls out her secret name, and he calls her forth out of her grave. Keep this in mind. If, ladies, if you ever think of becoming a Mormon, if he doesn't call that name, she doesn't come out. She's dead forever. If he calls somebody else's name, they go off and populate their planet together. She's left, left behind, a different sense of the word. And there's nothing she can do about it. So men are often tempted to trade in the one they have for another one because they'd rather populate their planet with her. That's right. What's what's thirty years on Earth compared to eternity on your new planet? That's right. Exactly. She goes on and on. Yeah. Imagine a ten thousand years of that. <laughs> but that's not just a that that's not just sort of a it's not a joke. It's an actual reality. There's there's a very high incentive to divorce among Mormons. We should probably stop here. We're actually out of time. And actually, you know, I once promised Pastor Fred that I wouldn't go past. 8.30, so apparently I lie. Uh, let's close in a word of prayer, though, for my salvation, maybe. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to study together, to look into your word, and to understand uh, more of your character, of your divinity, and, and especially, Lord, as we've now uh, talked about the Trinity, Lord, it's a mystery, no doubt, but it also is a mystery that is of great encouragement to us, and so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to understand better, and more importantly, to be moved to, in gratitude, to love you as we ought, and to serve you as we ought, and to know that we serve a great God who transcends even our understanding. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless us, that you would send us out with an extra blessing tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, thank you all very much. It's been a great time.